you may like to keep your Bibles open because uh, we're covering quite a lot of ground today. So if you have uh, maybe a marker in the Hebrews, shall I put the readings back? A marker in the Hebrews and another marker in Job, then you'll be able to keep track and make sure that I really am talking about what is written here in the Bible. Before we start, shall we pray? Lord God, thank you that we are gathered here today. And I pray that you would be with me as I speak and that it will be your word that goes into people's hearts this morning. Amen. So I always get really excited about baptisms. And this morning, it is wonderful to have the Huckles and the Bentleys here as we've just welcomed Katrina and James into the church family and as they start their journey of faith. And one of the ways that we can help them on that journey is by telling them the great stories of our faith. After all, stories are how deep truths have always been shared. Now, I love sharing books with my children, nephews, and godchildren, like uh, The Tiger That Came For Tea and The Gruffalo. They're great stories. Do you know them? And what about some of those beautifully illustrated Bible stories? They're great. And what about as they get older? Now, I've got a goddaughter in her teens now, and I have stopped giving her picture books for her birthdays. She prefers things that are a bit more gritty. She likes real-life stories like Anne Frank or the moral dilemmas in the stories of Jodie Picoult. Not so sugar-coated. It's the same with our Bible stories, isn't it? Those of us who were lucky enough to have grown up with a Sunday school um, background had this wonderful grounding in these brightly coloured picture book versions of the Old Testament. And that's good. And when we bring our children to baptism, we promise to bring them up in the faith. And sharing those stories is part of that. But as they get older, and as we mature in our faith and get older as well, we need to revisit the stories and look beneath the sugar coating. So Job, suffering at a baptism. Well, the more I think about it, the more it seems relevant for us to be reading from the end of Job today. You see, Job really is one of the great stories of our faith. For a start, the Jews have been telling this story since way back in the midst of time. Many scholars think that the folk story about this greatest man among all the people of the East existed even before it was written in the poetic form we find it today. Job himself was a contemporary of the patriarchs back in the time of Genesis. So if we're using longevity as a criteria, it really is a great story. But more than that, Job gets to grips with real life. And when we think about how we want to bring up our children and godchildren in the faith, we want to make sure that their faith has a strong foundation. I'm not saying Job makes good reading at bedtime for the under twos. But I do think it is important that as they grow up, we teach our children what the Bible really has to say. That God has never promised that faith in him would be a magic blanket to make it all better. We don't want to risk them losing their faith at the first hurdle just because we've not prepared them properly. So... Let's take an honest look at the book of Job. You see, a few weeks ago, we started the story with the catastrophic day when the bottom fell out of Job's world. We also saw behind the curtain. We know that the accuser, Satan, had permission to test Job. 
and that his suffering was not the result of his sin. We know that God was ultimately in control setting the boundaries. Now, since then, we've explored some of the, what, 35, 36 more chapters of beautiful poetic dialogue where Job and his comforters debate the origins of his suffering, where Job talks honestly to God and even shouts at him but refuses to curse him. His so-called comforters talked about God and they blame Job. They try, but they fail to fit Job's suffering neatly into their nice little theological boxes. Sometimes their words have seemed so contemporary. We've all heard terrible stories of suffering Christians who've been told, it is not God's will that you should suffer, so you must have unconfessed sin in your life. Or, if only you had enough faith, God would heal you. But Job gives us the confidence to say that is not true. And I hope that's a message we can pass on to our children. At the same time, I am convinced that God can and does perform miracles today. But those are the exception by very definition. In fact, I think it takes more faith, not less, to repeat the words that Job spoke in 121. The Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We also know that Job is not alone in suffering without apparent cause. From the way some Christians talk, you might be surprised to find that the Bible is full of the suffering faithful. Consider that wonderful roll call of the faith that we read from in Hebrews 11. You may like to look at it. The chapter opens, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab. And then this morning's reading continues. Others I do not have time to tell. But most importantly, in verse 39, we read how when they died, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better. Philip Yancey calls these people the survivors of the fog. Like Job, they all suffered. They all lived through times of questioning, of silence from God, when their prayers seemed unanswered. We know that feeling, don't we? Like them, our biggest fear in the silence is that somehow we've fallen through the cracks of the universe, that God's plan has somehow gone wrong. And yet, these heroes are commended for their faith. Their stories make up the great stories. And our reading this morning continued, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So, what about the greatest story of them all? Christ's story. Today in Lent, we're looking forward to Holy Week, to Good Friday, to Good Friday. Now, we Christians speak of the day when our God hung on the cross, gasping for breath, hated and abused, and we call that Good Friday. Reading Job during Lent, I think we can see an analogy here. The disasters which befell Job resonate with the 
sudden shocking pain of Good Friday. The unanswered questions we have in the book of Job could just as well have come from the lonely and confused disciples on Easter Saturday when God seemed absent and silent. But now Job is about to meet God and we come to the Easter Sunday of the story. What did you expect the first time you read this story? I remember pausing at the title in the text at chapter 38 and seeing the words, God speaks. After all that Job had been through in the previous chapters, I was ready to hear words of comfort from the God of love. I'm here, Job. Your suffering was not in vain. Well done, good and faithful servant. But instead, there are three more chapters of questions. Only this time, it's God who's doing the asking. Out of the storm, we read, God speaks. Not the still small voice or a whisper in Joe's mind, but a booming theophany. The almighty God answers at long, long last Job's earlier pleas for an audience. And what an audience. Job has front row seats for a soul-shaking verbal display of power and might. And yet God does not directly answer any of the questions posed by Job or his friends. And instead, he invites Job to draw his own conclusions about God's intrinsic godliness. Look through those questions in your Bibles. What do you see? God's questions show that, there, that God was there before the beginning of time, the ever-present, everlasting creator God. We get a sense of his power, of his wisdom, of his justice. God does not need anyone to defend him. He does not need to defend himself to anyone. He simply reminds us of all that he is, the great I am. When I read these chapters, I feel a growing sense of freedom and release, a reassurance that there is someone there behind the curtain who sees the bigger picture, someone outside time and space as we comprehend them. This voice who spoke to Job is the God who made the world and everything in it. What have we got there? He made everything from the ostrich to the hippopotamus, from the stars in the night sky to the wind and the rain and the hail. God who has the right to judge and the power to see those judgments through. It's all there. And this God has chosen to build a relationship with us mere humans. What a paradox. As Rabbi Boonham has suggested, perhaps we should carry in our pockets two stones. One should say, I am but dust. And the other, for my sake, God made the world. And the questions God asks Job make it clear just what an awesome creator God he is. But even he does not try to explain suffering to Job. In fact, the explanations would go as far beyond human comprehension as ultraviolet or infrared light go beyond the spectrum of what our human eyes can see. Philip Yancey sums it up beautifully. We remain ignorant of many details, not because God enjoys keeping us in the dark, but because we have not the faculties to absorb so much light. I'm reminded of a story 
told by Corrie Ten Boom in her autobiography, The Hiding Place. The book tells the story of how she and her family were captured hiding Jews from the Nazis. She saw her sister Betsy die in a concentration camp. And yet, her faith survived. Perhaps this story from her childhood might give us some clues as to how she could have held on to her faith. She writes of travelling on a train with her father, discussing some poetry she'd been studying at school. Father, what is sex in? she had asked. He turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question. But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his travelling case down from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corrie? he asked. I stood up and tugged at it. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said, and it will be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corrie, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older or stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it. And I was satisfied, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. For now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. Looking again at Job 42, there's something of this peace in how Job responded. We see how his whole perspective on the situation has changed by a direct encounter with God. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen, he says. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. At last, Job hands his questions over to God and lets them go. This is what he means when we read that he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's not repenting for some previously unconfessed sin. It's more that he's aware of his utter insignificance before God. I am but dust. I will question you no more. So, Job has no more questions, but his suffering has still not ended. He still sits on that ash heap with no promise of healing or restoration However, now he is full of worship and secure that he has a place in God's plan. What then of the epilogue? Job's restoration? When I first read the book, I felt let down by the ending. Why didn't it stop at verse 9? What good is it to those with terminal diseases or facing unremitting suffering to pretend that it's all going to be okay? But over the years, I've changed my mind for two reasons. Firstly, within the culture and within the genre of wisdom literature, Job's subsequent restoration is important because it proves that he was indeed innocent all along, that there was no hidden suffering, hidden sin behind his suffering. But also, I think it gives us a glimpse of the bigger picture. You see, it's clear as we read through the Old Testament that most of the heroes of our faith that we read from in Hebrews 11 and 12, most of them suffered. And those suffering heroes all played a part in God's plan. 
his plan of salvation through his people Israel. Salvation ultimately made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 puts it like this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. The book of Job stands outside the main story of God's interaction with his people. There is no bigger picture of promises being fulfilled, like we see when we look at the survivors of the fog in Hebrews 11. Instead, the poetic wisdom book of Job, it's got it all there in miniature. We see God in charge behind the scenes in chapter 1. We see human suffering and God's silence through the following chapters of questions. And then God speaks in chapter 38, reminding us of his power, knowledge, and wisdom. With loving tenderness, God provides a way for the redemption of those who've done wrong, the, fr the friends. And he uses his innocent, suffering servant, Job, to bring about their restoration. And the double portion of Job's restoration reminds us what Jesus has promised when he comes into his kingdom. We recall the familiar prophecy of Isaiah 61, which Jesus read in the synagogue. You remember the one that starts, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news. The passage goes on in verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. In our lives, we know that on a human level, things so rarely end with a double portion. But from the bigger perspective, and I say this so carefully because I don't want to sound glib, but there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all others. And it is with the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, where there will be no more suffering, that the greatest storybook of them all, the Bible, ends. In Revelation, then we see Eden restored on earth, not a fluffy cloud or a harp in sight, but a tangible new heaven, new earth, with no pain and no suffering. So, are we saying that our present suffering doesn't matter in light of what's to come? Can we oppress people with impunity? Because one day it will all be okay? Does God not care when it hurts? No. God knows about the hurt. And this talk of heaven is no mere consolation of religion. It is the correct context in which we can work out what the suffering and, more importantly, the unanswered questions and fog of God's silence really mean. Pete Gregg has written a powerful book called God on Mute, where he talks honestly about how the bottom fell out of his world. And that's a feeling I'm sure Job would relate to. When his wife, Sammy, suffered a brain tuber. Pete Gregg knows a lot about the power of prayer. As one of the founding leaders of the 24-7 prayer movement, he has seen many lives changed to the glory of God as the result of prayer. But 
While surgeons were able to remove the tumour from his wife's brain, not even the faithful prayers of thousands of people could lead to her being cured from the associated epilepsy. And yet, from within the fog of God's silence, they feel they've been able to engage with the silence. Like Job, they've been angry with God, shouted at him and cried out to him. And like Job, they have been able to come to a point where even within the suffering, they can worship the God whose ways are too wonderful to understand. In all of this, Pete and Sammy Greek have not yet reached their Easter Sunday. It is not yet all restored. I think that's why I found he was someone I could really listen to. When Pete and Sammy talk powerfully of the new heaven and the new earth, where one day we will walk with our Lord Jesus, I know they have looked death and suffering in the, faith, in the face. I think they have the right to tell us of that hope and to remind us of the place where fully healed and restored beyond the fog, we will be able to experience God clearly and his full glory. In all that we've looked at today, we're reminded that we follow Christ not for personal gain and comfort in this world, but in response to the awe-inspiring realisation that the God who made the world loves us enough to suffer and die in our place. That he loves us and we can't do anything to make him love us any more or any less. And because Jesus died and rose again, because he defeated sin on the cross, we can draw near to God. That's why we bring our children to baptism. That's why we want to tell them the great stories. So what then should we say to these questions that Job has made us ask? Well, there are no clear-cut answers, that's for sure. But this book wasn't written for answers. It was written to guide us towards wisdom and the wisdom we need to live out our lives and share with our children. I think Job teaches us that we need to engage with the silence and keep praying, even if it's only shouting at God. He can take it. Job did just that and was commended as my servant in the end. And we should try to be bravely honest in our community here at Camborne too. We should be bravely honest about our own times in the fog because our own painful personal stories, our testimonies, they often tell more of God than the rare but much trumpeted miracles. And that's why we need to keep telling the great stories, Job's stories, the stories of the survivors of the fog in Hebrews. Our stories. We learn deep truths in these stories, much more than any analytical commentary or sermon. But as Hebrews 12 reminds us, in all of this, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the suffering servant who brings eternal life. And as we tell these stories, we draw hope, not glib answers. Even God didn't give Job answers. But we can affirm that God is powerful, wise and just. We can't understand him, but we can trust him. And then we can say with Job, the Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.